Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the church, Grace Point Church. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Hebrews chapter 11. We're sort of to the, uh, the, the final stretch of Hebrews, the place where, you know, people when they say, oh, I like Hebrews, it's normally referring to the last three chapters. It's the, it's the good stuff. Um, there are some few points along the way that people really like, but this is the, the, the home stretch, sort of the, the crescendo of the book. Um, and we find ourselves dealing with a subject of faith, uh, an important topic within the scriptures. We'll pray and we'll begin. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this, this uh, wonderful letter uh, to the Hebrews. We uh, thank you for the challenges found within it. We thank you for uh, the hope that we have through this, the assurance that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, that it was once and for all, and that we can confidently enter before you uh, through his blood that was shed uh, on our behalf. So, Father, we come before you asking that you would help us to understand the meaning of this passage, that you would help us to know what it is that you would have us know about faith. Father, we pray that faith wouldn't just be something that's in our head, but it's something that we would have and that we would live out in our lives. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to become a faithful people, that we would honor you with our lives, that our lives would be pleasing to you. Help us, Lord. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith... Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, He was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So the question is, is how is the word faith used in our society? Um, When I think about faith, a couple of really bad uh, illustrations came to my mind this week. Uh, The first, when I hear, uh, keep the faith, what comes to mind in a San Diego audience? No, 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 they're not the job. But Padres, it's their saying, keep the faith. In my years of being a Padres fan, that hasn't gotten us anywhere. Um, 98 might have been the closest, and in the 80s, there was a little window there. Uh, 
but really the, the, the faith doesn't result in much. The other one was the, the song, George Michael, you got to have faith, faith, faith. You know, that's uh, for some reason that was in my mind this week, so I googled the lyrics to see if there was any help biblically, and there was zero help biblically. Um, uh, faith is one of these terms that in some ways is not very offensive in our culture, but it also can be very offensive and misunderstood. It seems that in the two illustrations I gave, there, we see two different aspects. Um, with the last one, this song, you've got to have faith, faith, faith. The, the idea is you have faith in actual faith itself. So the, the, the more that you wish upon the actual act of faith, um, the more opportunity there is. This can be very dangerous when we're speaking uh, religiously. I'll use that in general terms. I think of faith healers, and I've known individuals who uh, were suffering with something where they, for the rest of their life, they have to take medication. I think of somebody with diabetes, our friend who had diabetes, and they had to take insulin on a regular basis, and they went to a faith healing service, and the person said, if you have faith, you can stop your medication, and they were told that they were healed. And so by faith, they went out not taking insulin. Well, within two weeks, they found themselves in the ER. And what did the doctors do? They put him back on insulin. And the person went back and said, hey, I was told uh, I was healed, but I stopped taking my insulin. And they said, well, your faith wasn't strong enough. And I'm kind of like in the background going, well, that's a lot of faith. If you, I don't have diabetes, but from what I understand about it, to like walk away from your insulin, that take, that's a lot of faith. But, but the premise is, the reason that they weren't healed or that something didn't happen is because it, the faith is in actually their ability to have faith in, in, in faith itself. And that's what, what's his name? You got to have faith, faith, faith. There's zero substance beyond that. It's just faith and faith. And that's not what the Bible's asking to do. Um, concerning the Padres... That's closer to the biblical idea of faith. Let me explain. It's because it's faith that the Bible talks about. It's based not on, on faith itself or on the, on the individual, but it's on, the, on another object. However, the padres don't offer much in way of uh, victories. And so biblically speaking, when we talk about faith, faith is the object is God and his faithfulness and his reliability and his trustworthiness. I think that this is why Jesus said, "When you, if you have faith of the size of a mustard seed, so it doesn't matter how little your faith is. It's not about your faith. It's about the object that you're placing your faith in. And if you have a little bit of faith in a great God, great things can happen. But it's not based on you. It's based on him. A great example of faith biblically is in the story of Daniel. I'm not going to read the story, but in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, uh, after Israel had been taken into captivity, um, there, we're told that all the people were required to worship this golden statue. It was huge, like 100 feet tall. And there were three guys, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know the story. And what did they say to the king? Or, or what did they, they refused to bow down as everybody bowed down. 
And then their refusal to bow and to worship this idol was brought to the king's attention. And so the kids were brought before the king and they said, it was one of the greatest displays of faith and smack talking all at the same time. They say, we're not going to bow down to your statue or worship your gods. Our God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not going to bow down. And so what they're saying is we trust God regardless of the outcome. Our God can deliver us from this. But even if he doesn't, we trust in something greater, something that we don't see. And even if you take our lives, we want to be faithful to him who we will spend eternity with worshiping. And so we know how the story goes. They were delivered and God did a work there. But that idea of persecution fits the context of what we're dealing with. I say it all the time, chapter and verse in the Bible are not inspired of God. They are very helpful. Most of the times the divisions are are very handy. But in this case of chapter 11, I feel like we kind of cut off the bookends. I think that chapter 11 should probably start back in verse 32 of the previous chapter and probably should go two verses into the next chapter because that's the context of the subject at hand. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pause in the author's writing that he's going to pick up in, in chapter 12. You could debate where he wants to pick up, but there's, there's this discussion about faith. The reason I bring up Daniel's illustration with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the persecution is we've seen in context, verse 32 of chapter 10. How did we get here to the chapter of faith? We, we were told... Um, The the author reminds the recipients, remember the persecution that you've gone through. Remember the conflict of sufferings. Uh, Remember, uh, it says, you were made a public spectacle. You experienced reproaches and tribulations. You remembered the prisoners, those brothers and sisters in Christ who were uh, taken into custody because they followed Jesus as the Messiah. It said that you... You were joyful as your property was taken by by confiscation of the government because you followed Jesus. Terrible things were happening to them. And then in verse 35, in the midst of this reminder of the persecution that they were going through, as there was a temptation to drift away from Jesus, to go back under the law, to go back into the authorized religion of Judaism where the temple was going and running where there was safety and security. He says, don't don't drift. Hold to your confidence. Actually, he says, don't throw away your confidence in verse 35. This confidence that we're told in verse 19, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, he says, enter in. The work of Jesus on the cross was sufficient. His blood, his sacrifice was once and for all. There's confidence to enter the holiest of holies, which was unthinkable. And he's not even talking about the holiest of holies, which was a mere pattern on earth. He's speaking of the heavenly holies of holies where Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He says, don't throw away your confidence. What Jesus did accomplished much, and you can rely on him. He says, have confidence. In verse 36, he says, for you have need of endurance. So in the midst of this conversation, since you have confidence, since there's persecution, he's encouraging the readers, he's encouraging us to endure, to continue on, to carry out this faithfulness of trusting God, even though the circumstances 
are terrible. If we were to skip ahead to the very end of chapter 11, enter into verse chapter 12, verse 1, we'll read there, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which, is, which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance. The encouragement is to keep on keeping on. Don't worry about what's happening to you externally in this world. Don't worry about the persecution. Don't worry about the trials and tribulations that you're facing out of following Jesus. He says, endure. And to endure, it's going to take faith. And in verse 36 of chapter 10, or verse 37, excuse me, or 38, excuse me again. I'll just move on without making a comment. He quotes from Habakkuk. 2.4, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Habakkuk is one of, the, it's one of my favorite Old Testament prophetical books. Most of the prophets, they got a message from God and then they communicated it to the people. Habakkuk was different. Habakkuk is this prophet who is frustrated, worn out, confused, kind of upset and angry at God because he didn't seem, he seemed to be absent from the world and so Habakkuk really is this sort of this, we've intercepted his diary to God. He opens with God, how long do I got to look at this? How, how long does injustice have to go on? How long are you going to sit here and do nothing? How long are you not going to respond to my prayers? Then in 2.4, we hear, my righteous one shall live by faith. And from that verse, guys like the apostle Paul moved in Romans, the author of Hebrews uses it. Uh, Paul uses it again in Galatians. It's the verse that really started the Reformation with Martin Luther walking up the steps and he's memorizing Romans and he's trying to earn his way to God and he, this verse pierces his heart and he said, it's by faith. And he stands up on those steps and he walks away and from there the whole Reformation started. So the idea of faith is introduced to us in verse 38. In verse 39 he says, but we are not those who shrink back to destruction but those who have faith to the perseverance of the soul. In the Bible, the word, or the New Testament, I should say, the word faith is used 243 times. Uh, in Hebrews, it's used 32 times. Up to this point, it's only occurred, including all of chapter 10, the two that I read today, it's used six times. In chapter 11, this word is going to occur something like 24 times. And if you include the word it in verse 2, which I kind of do, you can bump it up to 25. And then only two times after chapter 11, which I've already told you, I think verse chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that's one of them. I think that should be included in this. The word faith, I don't think it's used in any chapter any more than Hebrews chapter 11. It, it is a word that appears over and over and over and over again. We're going to spend the, fourth, the, the next four weeks dealing with this issue of faith. The Bible uses this idea, this concept of faith many times because I think it's important. And God wants us to understand what does it mean to live by faith. And so as we come to verse 1, we're going to, we'll look at sort of what has been known as sort of the uh, operating definition of the word faith. 
It reads, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the foundation for, for, for all of chapter 11. Probably for anywhere in the Bible that faith is mentioned, this is sort of the idea of what uh, faith is. It's going to very quickly tell us that faith isn't in of itself. Faith is actually in an object that's God. And because our faith is grounded in something greater, we actually, um, you can trust it. So the first word that really jumps out, there's, there's two words in this definition, assurance and conviction. The first word, assurance, is a word um, that could be translated a number of, uh, of different ways. Hupotasso, uh, uh, it's to like bear under something, to, to carry the weight of something. It could be uh, translated substance. It could be translated confidence. It could be translated nature, which is sort of weird, and we'll look at the one usage that it was used that way. If you were to define this word, the Greek word, it would actually be translated or defined in this way, that assurance is actually a legal document to affect a transfer of property and to show legal right to possess it. So we're thinking about a like a pink slip of a car. We're, we're thinking about a, a, a property deed. It's a, it's a powerful tool. I think of your car. If you own your car and it's parked in your driveway and some guy rolls up to your house and says, hey, that's my car. Hey, that's not my car. You get off my property. That's my car. No, 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 that's my car. And they, they get in a little stalemate with one another. And then what's going to happen? They're going to call law enforcement. And law enforcement's going to come. They're going to look at the registration, which the registration or somebody's going to pull out the pink slip and say, this is the pink slip. It's got my name on it. And now if you're the guy that shows up at the guy's house and you have the pink slip and you're proving that that's your car, then that guy's going to get in trouble for stealing somebody's car. Or the guy that lives there, if that's his pink slip, that other guy's going to be basically, get off this guy's property, leave him alone. It's more than just having like a strong feeling. This is like, there's some basis to this. Um, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, what things are we hoping for? That, well, all of this, that Jesus is greater than all things. We're told that Jesus is speaking to us now, that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient. None of us were there. None of us saw Jesus execute, being executed. None of us saw his body. We weren't able to touch him. We weren't able to see his resurrected body. There's, we take it by faith. We've looked at the evidence and we say, I, I believe this. And faith sort of becomes the pink slip to the hope. And, and it's, it's going to be expanded upon this conviction of things not seen. And so this, this idea that there's more to this world than we can see and touch. But he's going to build this case that faith isn't just like blind faith. This is based on substance. This is based on evidence. Everything in life, we all exercise faith day in and day out, and we don't even, we don't even realize it. Every, every one of you sitting down demonstrated faith. Like how many of you actually like took the chair before you sat down and like, 
hey, can a kid come jump on this to make sure it'll hold me? No, you guys just sat down. And you, you, exer- you exercised faith. Now, whether you had a little faith or a lot of faith, it had, it had no implication in what that chair could sustain. And the author is trying to show us that our, our hope, our faith, the faith that our hope is in, or the faith that we are hoping in, yeah, I said it right, that there's substance there. Exact opposite of the Padres. Um, that if God said it and God assures you that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient for you, you can take him at that. Now, I mentioned this worst, the, the assurance could be nature. Uh, we don't have to go there, but in Hebrews 1.3, in the opening sort of verses of Hebrews, the same word, translate, this word assurance is translated nature. And in verse 3, it talks about Jesus being the exact representation of his nature, God's nature. And so it's kind of like when John in John 1.18 talks about that, uh, that, that when we saw Jesus, that he, he explained the Father so that when we look at Jesus, he's the perfect picture of the nature of God. And so when we come to him, there's, there's assurance that God is behind what we're believing. This, this conviction of things not seen, conviction is proof, evidence. It's shoring up the first half of this, like really hammering home that, that this isn't blind faith. We are basing our trust in the character and nature of the creator of the universe. This week I went to the eye doctor and uh, like every couple of years I kind of, you know, because the Printing seems to be getting blurrier these days. I don't know what they're doing with printers. And uh, so every couple of years I go, hey, do I, am I there yet? Am I there? Do I need glasses? He's like, you're getting close. He's like, I'm like, how will I know? He's like, well, you can use readers. And I'm like, yeah, I use them when I'm at home, but I, I haven't gotten to the point where I got to use them like when I'm speaking. And he's like, the day will come when you get up there and you look down at your Bible or your piece of paper and you won't be able to see anything. <laughs> And you'll know it's time. And so I said, oh, okay. And he like, he's running all these batteries of tests. He's like, oh, yeah, I want to check one more thing that can be a sign of something else going on. So he pulls out these, these cards. They were like six by six squares. And he flips them. He's tell me what you see. And I said, oh, I see six, seven, these numbers. And they're like little bubbles in slightly different color. And he was checking for color blindness. And so I, could, I nailed him. I'm like, oh, yeah, they would have weeded me out years ago because they kind of take it seriously about snipping wires and stuff if you snip the wrong color. Uh, Things go boom really fast, and it's not good. And, and, and so I was thinking and looking at this. Now, if I was colorblind, those numbers would still exist, even though they were unseen to me. So our ability to see or not to see doesn't change the reality of what's there. And the Bible makes it clear that there's so much beyond what we can see with our senses or touch, feel, all that, that it's beyond that. But that doesn't make it less true if you don't see it. Augustine said, faith is to believe what we do not see, and the reward of this faith is to see what we believe. Which is kind of beautiful. I mean, this is, it's in Corinthians all over the place that the, that the man of the Spirit is able to see things through the Spirit that uh, the natural man can't see. On this verse, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The HCSBC, I forget, Holman Christian Standard Bible. It's a Southern Baptist Bible. 
So I refer to it as a hardcore Southern Baptist translation. It is, they translated verse 1 really well. And how they translated Hebrews 11.1, 1, they translated it, uh, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And so this is the framework that everything's going to build upon. And so we come to verse 2, and he says, For by it, I think you can translate that faith, for by faith the men of old gained approval. So the point that he's getting at through all of chapter 11, the same point that Paul makes in Romans 4 concerning Abraham, is that it's always been salvation by God's grace through faith alone. Works never saved anybody. The temptation here was to go back under the legal system, under the Mosaic system, to continue sacrifices to try to please God. And the author says, we're going to take a journey from creation to present day at the time of his writing, and he's going to show us that it's always been faith. There's going to be great works that we'll see, but, but the cart never goes in front of the horse. These great works that God is pleased with they, they're from the foundation of faith and trusting God, which through chapter 11, we'll see this nuance of faith is going to be slightly different. So you can, you can have faith, which you see the evidence, you say, okay, I believe. And to walk away at that point without doing anything more isn't necessarily the biblical definition of faith. For Jesus says this, for the, for the demons believe, but they're not saved. And so someone has said that faith could be defined or explained that it's trust with the nuance of obedience. It's coming and recognizing, but then allowing that truth that you're acknowledging to have an impact in your life to where you then move forward with that. I think of uh, being a parent. I I wonder if I'm harboring feelings uh, from my childhood of being promised something and not having it delivered. I've, I, I think having kids, I've, I've always said, well, if I say something, I want to follow through with it. Um, like the, the child in me that's still angry, you know. The dad said he would take me out to ice cream, and ice cream never came. So I'm still upset about that, that my dad said, hey, after, when I get home from work, you can have ice cream. And I was waiting for ice cream, and ice cream would come. It was not ice cream. It was something else. But, uh, you know, it's, the problem is me. It's not my dad. But then as a parent, I'm like, if I say something, I really want to follow through. But then stepping into my adult body, like I, I recognize that life comes with challenges. And, and I can say, oh, kids, I, when I get home, we can go to In-N-Out and things change. And we don't get to go to In-N-Out, which is catastrophic in our family. Uh, or say, hey, kids, when I get home from work, we can, we can go swimming. And I've learned that over the years that if I say that in the morning, when I come home, if I say in the morning, hey, when I get back, we'll go swimming, I know that when I get home, kids are going to be in their swim trunks. They're going to have the goggles on their forehead. And it's going to be like, why in the world did you say they're going to go swimming? I'm like, well, they're ready to go. They're like, they've been ready to go since you left. <laughs> like, I've been doing school all day with, in swim trunks and goggles on the forehead and I was like, oh. But it's a beautiful picture that that's what, like, faith is trust with the, the nuance of obedience. That God says something, we're going to respond 
Say, hey, God says we're going swimming. I'm getting on my trunks and my goggles, and I'm ready to go for when it's time. It's time. It's a beautiful picture of how we're to be. So he says, for by it, faith, men of old gained approval. And we're going to go through memory lane of all of these characters in the Old Testament and, and, and present day for them, of how their faith was manifested in their lives as an example to us to encourage us to live our lives by faith. I think this is a beautiful thing, why you as a Christian should be reading biographies on those who have lived their lives before you and to see how their faith was lived out. It's wonderfully uh, encouraging. You know, one of my favorites is Evidence Not Seen. It kind of fits with the passage, but Darlene Diablo-Rose, who was this missionary, she's passed away at this point, but most of her years serving as a missionary ended up being in a prison camp during World War II. And to see how her faith manifests and what she went through, it's remarkably uh, encouraging and challenging in my own life and, and so many others who have gone before us to look to them and to see how did faith work itself out. And that's what he's going to do. Verse 3. He's going to start with creation. By faith. And I want to pause there at that word, by faith. We're going to see something like 19 times in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Anybody been counting? I don't I have no idea where I am. But 19 times by faith. It, it's a literary tool that almost becomes like rhythmic if you're reading through it. By faith, Noah. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Abraham over and over, and in those repetition of those two words, a subtle point is made, or maybe it's not subtle at all, but by faith is the point that these great men and women who honored God with their lives, who suffered much, it wasn't their works that are being emphasized, it's their faith that's being emphasized. And so we start here, verse 3, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. That's, it's, this is hilarious to me. This was written 2,000 years ago. It's, it's easy for us with the Bible to kind of lose the, uh, the, this ancient text that we have. Um, but 2,000 years ago, if we were to jump in the shoes of humanity, we, we were going to we'll see that 2,000 years ago that the debate over where did everything come from, how did it all begin, that that was, an, that was a debate then. The whole where did this world, where did the stars, where did, where did we come from is a question that all of humanity is asking. There is nothing new under the sun. The, uh, the debate amongst atheists and believers and creation, like, this is nothing new. I'm not even going to get into the age of it because it, what, what, what's being said here is it's not, not even relevant over the age of the earth and the age of everything. This is simply, where did the stuff come from? And I, I, see, I want to be careful using scientists because there's, sci- there's a ton of scientists that are creationist scientists that, that support what the Bible says, even if they're not even Christian, but they, they support in 
there's a concession that something had to have happened. Because what a scientist can't honestly do is they can't answer the question, where did the stuff come from? Um, the discussion is really not a, not a science question. It's a history question because the creation of the heavens and earth, it was something that happened in history way long ago. No scientist, no human that I've met can actually recreate the creation of the, the heavens and the earth and the sea. Like you, you, Nobody can recreate it. Science re- requires that you be able to recreate everything. Now, we can use science to sort of validate points, but, but whatever premise you're putting in, if you're an atheist scientist going in, you go in with certain uh, assumptions, and then you can spit out your beliefs. Now, if you're going in as a scientist that believes in creation and a God, you're putting in certain assumptions, and then your stuff spits out, and then you use science to kind of uh, test your hypothesis of things. But, but it's really a, a, a historical question. And both sides exercise faith. You know, scientists would roll over and say, there's no way I'm using faith. I'm using science. It's like, no, you're not. You can't recreate anything. Because you won't answer me the question, where'd the stuff come from? And if you push the scientists, no matter how many billions of years you give them, I say, okay, I'll give you that it's 100 billion years. Let's go back. Then we go back 100 billion years. Now we're over here. I agree. Okay, I'll concede to you. Where'd this stuff come from? And they, they, can't, they can't answer the question. So whatever timeline you're using, the person of faith says that you back it up to whatever story you want to fill in. The person of faith says, Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning God created. You read through chapter 1 and it says, God said, let there be fill in the blank. And then, the fill in the blank is explained, and then it says, and it was so. So the person of faith says, I believe that God said that he spoke things into existence. He spoke matter into existence. Thomas Aquinas, on a different subject, he said a quote that I think applies very well to the subject of, of creation. He says, to the one who has faith, no expl- explanation is necessary. To the one without faith, no explanation is sufficient. Because the science, like, An atheist scientist will never be able to answer the question of where did the stuff come from? And it's history. Nobody creates out of nothing. And that's the biblical term, the Latin phrase ex nihilo, which means God created from nothing something. And then the question is, do you believe this? Do you have faith? And if you do, actually in verse 3, this heroes of the faith, you could be actually included into this Heroes of the faith, because he says, for by faith we. He's including himself, he's including the readers. It could be expanded out to us that if you believe, suddenly you're in Hebrews chapter 11. For by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Okay, for time's sake, I got to speed along here. We're going to kind of blast through these couple characters. Um, The first guy that we're introduced to is by faith. Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So we go from creation to Cain, or excuse me, to Abel. Cain's shadow is there in a big way. Um, Who did we miss? We flew right over Adam and Eve. Why are Adam and Eve not there? 
start thinking about it. Well, why is why are Adam and Eve, why would Adam and Eve not be included? The t- temptation would be like, oh, they sinned. It's their fault that weeds come. It's their fault that childbirth hurts. It's their fault. All, all of this stuff. Well, but everybody in the heroes of faith section sinned. So you, we got to rule out it's not sin. It's been, it's been uh, the thought is that Adam and Eve didn't have to live by faith. They lived by sight. God was in their presence. They spoke to God. They saw God. There was no barrier. Their sight had to turn to faith as they sinned. And for us, we're told that we live by faith, and one day our faith will become sight. And so we come to Cain, we come to Abel. (laughs) I keep thinking about the brother that killed the one. And we're told a better sacrifice. Now it's assumed, it's presumed that they knew exactly the kind of sacrifice they were to make. Uh, Cain did what he wanted, and he offered God something that he didn't ask for, which the lesson there, I think, is that's exactly what works are. So often we bring to God what he doesn't ask of us. He asks of us to come to him by faith and to honor him and to live for him by faith. But we come to him and offer him these works, like, look what I'm doing for you, God. I'm hoping to earn your favor. And God's like, I'm not asking you for sacrifice. I'm asking you for faith, which may lead to works, of course. But Abel did what he was asked to do, and he made the sacrifice. And in his trusting and obeying God, persecution came. His brother killed him. It's the first argument over worship. And Abel worshipped in the way that God asked him to worship. And Cain got mad, so Cain killed him. And the lesson here is that Abel's faithfulness to God, regardless of the persecution, that it was credited to him as righteousness. And we're told that even though he's dead, He's still speaking to us about faith. Then we come to Enoch in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. So we don't know much about Enoch. Enoch is recorded in the pages of Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. And in Jude, verse 14 and 15, there's only one chapter, so it's chapter 1, verse 14. He's mentioned in Jude. So in the midst of the genealogy in chapter 5, there's a few verses that we're told about Enoch. And all we're told about Enoch, really, is that he was the father of Methuselah, which if you're ever on the Jeopardy, then that question comes up. He's the oldest man who ever lived in the Bible. And we're told that he had a bunch of kids. He had a number of kids. We know that that generation was wicked and evil. It was leading up to the flood. And we saw the perversity of the people during that time. And in the midst of this perversity, in the midst of this world gone bad, we're told that Enoch had sons and daughters and he walked with God and raised them in the midst of this. And he prophesied against this wicked generation. We're told that in Jude. And then we're told because he walked with God, he was taken. No death, he just was taken. Swindoll on On Enoch, says this, Enoch's faith, which kept him in step with God and out of step with his generation, pleased God so much that he was taken from the earth before the judgment of the flood. So I think the encouragement from Enoch is that we're to walk faithfully with God. We live in a generation, too, that God is not at the center stage. And so we're encouraged, regardless of what our peers, what the media, what the world tells us, 
Enoch is screaming with us, trust God, walk with God. It pleases him. I was going to end at verse 6, but I decided this morning to skip ahead of verse 6 and go to verse 7. The reason I want to jump down to verse 7 before we hit verse 6 and sort of end with verse 6 is that these uh, three guys, we have Abel, we have Enoch, and now we have Noah. These are the first three testimonies pre-flood. These are the oldest characters that the author can draw from in the Bible showing that faith has always been a priority of God's. And so we come to Noah. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, what things were not seen. Now, it's speculated that before the flood, the earth had this canopy that sort of maintained a perfect climate. Uh, There was never rain. Like, there's no record of rain prior to the flood. Noah lived way inland and is like, hey, Noah, I'm sick of the wickedness, and so I need you to build this huge boat. But I don't even know that he knew it was a boat, but it's like, build this ark, and you're going to fill it with animals. Call out to your people, the the generation that you live, warn them. And if they respond to me, there'll be security. And so we're told that Noah challenged the wickedness in his culture. Never seen rain, never seen a flood. He's out in the middle of nowhere. They're mocking him, laughing him as the decades go by. And at the end of the day, he gets the animals loaded up. He goes in with his family because they're the only ones that responded and the rain came. And so because of the story, we're told that being warned by God about things not yet seen, he's never been, he'd never seen rain, kind of like us. When I look at my friends on the East Coast, it's like, what is this rain you speak of? Like, we, we get it like once or twice a year. Um, but he'd never seen rain. So he's saying, hey, this water's going to fall from the clouds, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to really pick up, and it's going to cover the whole earth. God, this doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm, I'll do what you say. You gave me the specs, I'll build it, and I'll, we'll see what happens. So we said that, he, that being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, I think, to God, he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world. And he became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. He is not, he is not commended by the great boat he built. He is not commended by being able to wrangle up all the animals. He is not commended by any other thing other than he responded to God in faith. It made no sense what God was asking him to do, and yet he says, yes, God, in obedience, I'm going to do what you say because I trust you. And then we come to sort of the conclusion of today in verse 6, backing up a bit. And we read, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. So the question here is, what is faith? The one translation, the hardcore Southern Baptist translation that I really liked, I, the faith is the reality of what is hoped for. The proof of what is not seen. And what is asked about faith in verse 6? The first thing we see is to believe that God is that he exists. There's this idea, you look upon the world, you look upon creation. Psalm 19 tells us um, that that, that, the creation is declaring, crying out that there's a creator. And God says, faith, number one, is acknowledging that he is. 
We're told to seek him diligently. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And this diligence that I mentioned is sort of uh, looking at this seeking him, responding to him. I, I, think of, um, I think of Acts 17, verse 27. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's Paul at Mars Hill amongst these Greeks who have no baseline for God. And as he is pleading with the philosophers, he starts at creation and he says, this God created, this unknown God to you. He created everything, and from these two people, he created every single human being that's ever existed. And what he says about every single human being, including me and you, is he says that uh, the year in which you were born, and the location on the world that you were born, and the limitations that were placed on you were no accident. But you were placed by God in the circumstances that you were placed with, because you being you, that all of the circumstances that you were given the sweetest spot for you to be is exactly where God placed you to do something. And this is what verse 27 is, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him. This word grope is a word that describes a blind person using their hands to see with. That they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. What does God want more than anything from each one of us? I think he stacked the deck against you in the sweetest spot, so that you might respond and seek him because he wants relationship with each one of us. He wants to be taken at his word. He wants us to hear what he says and that we would respond with our lives and that we would honor him with our lives. Trusting God with the nuance of obedience. And why in the world would we do this? Well, we're told in verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him. But if we reverse this, we're told, If you walk by faith, it pleases God. Have you thought about like how you live your life, how you function? You can either uh, have a negative impact on how God feels or a positive impact. And God says, have faith. Trust me. And when we walk by faith, it pleases him. You know, I joke about my kids in the swimming and showing up at the end of the day with them in their trunks and goggles on their head. It's a powerful lesson to me that I kind of go, oh, man, I'm sorry, Anna, that I did that to you. But during the first service when I said that, I'm like, there's something beautiful that as a dad, I say something to my kids. They trust me. They take what I say, and then they respond based on what I say, even if there's a little bit of delay, and they're going to do it like they're waiting in their swim trunks and their goggles. And when we do the same with God, when we respond by faith, even though we might not understand or it might be a little bit in the future, but when we say, hey, Lord, I've got my swim trunks on, my goggles on, it brings a smile to his his face or his heart. And then we're told that if we respond this way, that, that he's a rewarder of those who seek him, that he blesses us beyond what we deserve. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for... This chapter, this, this, encur- this encouragement of seeing those who have gone before us, who have lived by faith. Father, we pray that you would help us to increase our trust in you. Lord, you're a God that we can't necessarily see. You're more like the wind. We feel you. We 
sense the evidences of these things. And so we need faith. We need trust and responding to the things that you say. And I think of that man, the father who came to Jesus and he said, Lord, help my unbelief. And so, Lord, we ask, help us to grow in our assurance and our confidence of the things that you have told to us. Father, may our faith not just be skin deep, but may we respond to you with all that we are. May we obediently follow you all the days of our life, not to earn favor, but because we've come to you by faith. We've received new life. We've received the blessings and the inheritance that Christ provided on the cross. We bring nothing to the table. But Lord, out of this worship and adoration of you, we desire to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. We thank you that you're so patient with us. We love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.